U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and the XO is in the corner. Hey, Steven. Hey there, everyone. So we have some exciting Navy-related news. Apparently, the deepest uh, wreck ever in regards to World War II has been discovered. The USS Samuel E. Roberts. B. Oh, can't forget the B. You said E, not B. Damn it. And actually, I think this is the deepest shipwreck ever found at this point in time. Well? So, so because of uh, this discovery, we decided we're going to do the history of the Samuel B. Roberts. All, mostly nine months of it. This will be a brief one, folks. Yes. Which is good, because I don't know if you could tell by my voice, but I'm a little bit under the weather. Yeah, we we pulled into port for some shore leave, and Captain was missing for a solid 12 hours. He came stumbling back to the ship, happy as could be, but then the next morning, looked like death's door. Yeah, and of course, you know, as always, Steve gets the blame. Well, yes. It's my job to enforce discipline and keep morale up. So, yeah, I just told the boys uh, we had too much fun. So, the Samuel B. Roberts, hull number is DE-413. She was a John C. Butler-class destroyer escort and served in 1944. She is also the first of three U.S. Navy ships to bear the name. She was named after a coxswain named Samuel Booker Roberts, Jr., who is a Navy Cross recipient. He got his Navy Cross for voluntarily steering a Higgins boat towards enemy forces at Guadalcanal, trying to divert fire from evacuation efforts that were being undertaken by other friendly forces. So, in a lot of times, the boat that you're serving on has a nickname. So, in this case, the... Samuel B. Roberts was nicknamed the Sammy B, or the Sam Buka, which was a popular Italian spirit. (laughs) Well, we know what their drink of choice was, even if we were enemies with them at the time. Right. So, the the keel was laid down December 6th of 1943 at the Brown Shipbuilding Company in Houston, Texas. She was then launched January 20th, 1944, and was sponsored by the namesake's mother, Mrs. Anna Roberts. So, from keel down to launching was not very long. Yeah, I I recall making that observation during the uh, Great Lakes, you know, naval rush, so to speak, of, wow, that's really impressive, building a ship of the line once a month. And now, I'm a little less impressed with the the War of 1812's production because, you know, a ship of the line, powered by sail, you know, you got enough hands, enough lumber, know what you're doing, sure, that seems feasible. A more or less modern warship in a month and two weeks is insane. And this wasn't a one-off thing. They were keeping up those numbers, I assume. Oh, yeah. This is why we outproduced 
everybody every time. Yep. This is what they were afraid of. They were afraid of us just turning around and start producing and producing and producing and producing and then just flooding the field, which is exactly what happened. And this was one shipyard in Houston. I'm sure Houston has other shipyards, never mind the Bay Area or Seattle. And I know there were several uh, shipyards in the Great Lakes that were also producing boats, albeit smaller ones. So, yeah, this is a perfect example of what we've always done. So she was finally commissioned in April 28th of 1944 and was given to Lieutenant Commander Robert W. Copeland, who was actually part of the United States Reserves. So let's go into her vital statistics a little bit. She had a displacement of 1,370 tons. Her length was 306 feet. Her beam was 36 feet, 8 inches. She had a draft of 9 feet, 5 inches. She ran 12,000 horsepower with two geared steam turbines, two boilers, and two shafts. She was designed to run at 24 knots, and she achieved 28.7 knots. She had a range of 6,000 nautical miles at 12 knots. She had a crew complement of 14 officers and 201 enlisted. And she had a SF multi-purpose radar for seeing those pesky incoming bogies. Now, her armament were two 5-inch guns, two twin 40-millimeter AA guns, ten single 20-millimeter AA guns, one triple 21-inch torpedo tube, eight depth charge throwers, one hedgehog ASW motor, and two depth charge racks. Now, when you were saying this had steam engines, I thought the Navy was primarily using diesel engines for propulsion at this time. No, primarily we used steam. We would use boilers to make the steam and then use that to run the turbines. Oh. Diesels would have been on the submarines. Okay. And smaller boats like tugs, things of that nature. These bigger vessels would have always been steam. Nowadays, they're all gas turbine. With the huge ships being steam via nuclear power. So how were they generating the steam at this time? Coal? No, not coal. It would have been fuel. Fuel oil. Oh, okay. She had her shakedown crews off of Bermuda from May 21st to June 19th. Then went to the Boston Navy Yards, you know, to fix all the bugs that they had found during the shakedown. Right. Then she went to Norfolk, Virginia on July 7th. Now, apparently, later on July 7th, when she left for Norfolk, she possibly struck a whale. Oh. And that bent her starboard propeller. So they had to turn around and get that fixed. And that was finished on July 11th. So then she departs for Norfolk again. Manages to avoid whales this time, I assume? 
Well, hopefully. So she goes and departs Norfolk on the 22nd and goes through the Panama Canal on the 27th, where she joins the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor on August 10th. So she conducts some training exercises around the Hawaiian Islands and then gets underway on August 21st with a convoy going to the Anitok Atoll on August 30th. And then goes back to Pearl with a second convoy on September 10th. Then she does some more training and she gets underway on the 21st of September and escorted a another convoy back to Anitwak and gets there on the 30th. All right. She then proceeds to Manus Island in the Admiralty Islands in the Southwest Pacific to join Task Unit 77.4.3, nicknamed Taffy 3. From there, she goes to Lafayette Gulf off the Eastern Philippines. And when she gets there, she commences operations with the Northern Air Support Group off of the island of Samar. So at dawn on October 25th, she was protecting Taffy 3's escort carriers, whose aircraft were supporting the Army assault. They were steaming off the eastern coast when Japanese Center Force, which was a 23-ship task force under the command of Vice Admiral, sorry for butchering this, Takio Kurita appeared on the horizon and opened fire. So at 0735, Roberts turns and heads towards the heavy cruiser Chakia. The commanding officer announces, We're making a torpedo run. The outcome is doubtful, but we will do our duty. So they lay smoke and Roberts steams to within two and a half nautical miles of Chioki coming under fire from the cruiser's forward 8-inch guns. So, she had moved so close that the enemy guns could not depress enough to hit her, and when they got into torpedo range, she launches three Mark 15 torpedoes. One of them blew off the Chioki's stern. Like, just the entire stern. Gone. Boom. Gone. Good shot. Torpedoes, they're deadly, man. So she continues to fight off the Japanese ships for another hour, firing more than 600 five-inch shells and maneuvering very, very close to them. Oh, back to the Chioki. She started hitting her superstructure with 40-millimeter and 20-millimeter anti-aircraft guns. You know, in regards to actually doing damage to the ship itself I mean you're going to be chipping a lot of paint but that's definitely going to keep the crew and officers below decks yeah nothing says uh, hit the ground like uh, several guns just going burrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
it killed and wounded several crew members. So, with her remaining 5-inch gun, she sets the bridge of the heavy cruiser Chikuma on fire and destroys the number 3 gun turret. Roberts was then hit by three 14-inch shells from the battleship Congo, which tears a hole 40 feet long and 10 feet wide in her port side and her aft engine room. Yeah, I think you're going to need more than a few pails of water to bail the water out of there. Yeah. Well, I mean, a destroyer escort getting a battleship's attention, you got to be doing massive damage. But, right, and that's the other thing. You said this one destroyer had been managing to hold off a battle group of 21 ships, if I heard you right? No, not by herself. She was with the fleet. Okay. Yeah, we're just going through her specific action of what she did. I see, I see. Yeah, we'll get into the whole battle off Samar when we get to World War II. So it's going to be a while. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. So at 0935, the order to abandon ship was given. She sank about 30 minutes later with 90 of her crew. 120 survivors were separated among three life rafts for about 50 hours until they were rescued. So as I said before, she was designed for 23, 24 knots. But during this battle she managed 28.7 knots. She did this by raising the pressure to 660 pounds per square inch and diverting all of that steam to her ship's turbines. Now, I've been out of manufacturing for a while, and I understand in wartime, you, you gotta push it to the limit. But I'm pretty sure that uh, was pretty much throwing every safety regulation and uh, warranty out the window for those turbines and pipes. Well... Not only that, but this was probably a 600-pound steam system. So they upped that by 60 pounds. That is a lot of pressure. Yes, that, that is the engineers below Decker constantly side-eyeing that pipe in the gauge like, huh, I don't want to be too close to this anymore. So her name was stricken from the Naval Vessel Register on November 27th of 1944. She was included in the Presidential Unit Citation, which was given to Task Force Unit 77.4.3, for extraordinary heroism in action. And she earned one battle star for her World War II service. I mean, she only participated in one battle, but she performed quite well in that battle. So, Gunner's Mate 3rd Class, Paul H. Carr, was in charge of the aft 5-inch gun mount which had fired nearly all of its 325 stored rounds in 35 minutes before that breach explosion. He was found dying at his station from a severe intestinal wound, begging for help to load the last round he was holding into the breach. So he wasn't begging for medical help. He was begging for help of getting this gun firing. So for this, he was posthumously awarded a Silver Star, and the guided missile frigate Carr was later named after him. And the frigate Copeland was named for the ship's commanding officer. So that is the history of the Samuel B. Roberts. So now we get into the news event. So a man named Victor Vescovo 
He is a Texan financier and adventurer who owns a deep diving submersible, discovers the Sammy B, battered but largely intact. Well, professional adventurer sounds like a fun career. Yeah, you gotta have the money though. <laughs> he finds it in 22,621 feet of water. Which, to put that into perspective, folks, that is deeper than the highest peaks in North America. Okay. Yeah, Mount Denali is 20,310 feet at its peak, more commonly known as Mount McKinley. So the imagery that was captured by this sub, which was called the Limiting Factor... The pictures that it sends back, it shows the hull structure, guns, and torpedo tubes. It shows the puncture holes from the Japanese shells, and there is evidence in the stern quarter of the one massive hit from the battleship. And because of the crumpled appearance, it appears that the vessel impacted the seafloor bow first. So... Do we know why it's in relatively good condition despite being at such high pressure from that depth and extreme temperatures? That's exactly why. Oh. There's not much living down at those depths. So there's not going to be too much to really rust it out and destroy it. I mean, it's still, if you look at these pictures, there's still, you know, stuff on it. But it's still in really, really good shape. Right. I, I saw some of those pictures, and it's like you look at like the Titanic wreck, and like that was almost looking like a, a coral reef with how much, uh, you know, I'm not sure what they were, barnacles or, mm -hmm. you know, just rust that was building up. But, you know, it, it certainly did not look like the pictures you see of the Titanic, you know, when it was leaving port. But this looks like, you know, aside from being underwater in some large holes that aren't supposed to be there, it could be seaworthy. Close, I guess. But, uh, yeah, the uh, depth and what's able to live down there is what helps preserve it. I mean, this thing is... 98% of the world's ocean is less than 20,000 feet deep, right? So this is under that... So there's not going to be much that lives down that far. Do we know if uh, our good adventurer friend was specifically looking for this wreck? Or he just happened to be in the area doing a deep sea dive and... Oh, oh, that is a ship. No, he was specifically looking for this. Um, a lot of research goes into finding a shipwreck especially something this far out in this deep. Mm -hmm. So finding a shipwreck in the first place is a needle in a haystack. So the more research you do, the smaller that haystack gets, but it's still a needle in a haystack. Well, yeah, yeah. It's like, even if you reduce it to like uh, an area roughly 20 miles by 20 miles, that's still 400 square miles that you're trying to find something about the size of a football field. Yeah. Under lots and lots of water. And I doubt we have sonar good enough to, you know, very accurately map 
the bottom of the ocean floor over 20,000 feet deep and pick up, hey, that looks like a boat. Well, actually, you can see that on sonar, but you've got to be pointing it at the exact location of that shipwreck. Otherwise, you're going to miss it. Otherwise, you'll just get a rough map, not... Uh, and it'll look more like a weird rock formation rather than a boat. Well... If that. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at it. It's going to be hard to see exactly what it is because it's not going to look like a boat in the first place. It's going to look like a line. <laughs> so you got to know what you're looking for and things of that nature. But it's expensive and it is not easy. So that's why rich people do it. And no, they will not raise this thing to the surface. Okay, I wasn't going to ask that because it would just be a very, very low benefit for an exorbitant cost. Yeah, but I, I saw that in your eyes. You were like, <laughs> it, it was written right there. Oh, are they going to attach balloons and bring it up? Please say they will. Please say they will. You know me so well, Captain. <laughs> so... That is it for the Samuel B. Roberts. She had a very short life, but she went out a hero. All right, folks. We will see you next week. We'll be resuming our normal scheduled broadcast. If you want to reach out to us, you can do so at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Twitter now, Captain. Would you care to share that? Oh, I thought maybe you were going to have that. <laughs> the Twitter is at USN History Pod. All right. Oh, and Captain, I have this wonderful remedy for this uh, terrible bug that you've been suffering for. Uh, I tracked down the eggs. I just need some motor oil. And otherwise, just don't smell this concoction too much. Just gulp it down fast and you'll feel right as rain. Well, you're a, my official taste tester, so you got to do it first. Hmm. Well, uh, just err on the side of caution. Here's the poison control number. That's what I thought. Guys, he's trying to get rid of me. <laughs> While I'm busy uh, losing my internal organs from this interesting cocktail, I wish you fair winds and following seas. See you guys next time. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Mm -hmm.